Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Representative Brad Schneider is a Democratic member of Congress representing Illinois' 10th congressional district. He's also a former member of AJC's Chicago Regional Board. He joins us now to discuss the fallout from the Israeli government's decision to bar Democratic members of Congress Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, President Trump's recent attacks on Jews who vote for Democrats, and the landslide vote in favor of Congressman Schneider's anti-BDS bill in July. Congressman Schneider, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Sefi. I want to get the uh, the most important thing out of the way first, which is if my informants are correct, this is your birthday week. So happy birthday on my own behalf and on behalf of all of our listeners here at AJC Passport. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> to something a little bit more serious. Last week, the Israeli government made the decision to bar uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar from entering the country due to their support for the anti-Israel boycott movement. You're a longtime lover of Israel and a champion of the U.S.-Israel relationship. What was your first reaction when you heard that your colleagues, Representatives Omar and Tlaib, would be denied entry? Well, let me first say that when it comes to Israel-U.S.-Israel relationships, uh, Israel's path to peace and security, I don't think it's possible for me to disagree more than I do with uh, the positions of Tlaib and, and Omar. I, I think they're wrong. I think they're on the wrong path. I think their criticisms are, are misguided. That said, uh, I think it was a mistake for Israel to have uh, blocked their entry. And my first thought at the time was, uh, this is really going to uh, play out uh, unfortunate. Because it, it, and this is what I said to Ambassador Dermer when I spoke to him, that effectively it not only gives these uh, two members of Congress, two freshman members of Congress, it doesn't give them a bigger microphone. It gives them a soundstage to broadcast their message. Mm. And that's what's happened. That's what we've seen. Do you think that it has now entirely played out or is there more to come? There have been reports that Congress is going to be taking some action against Israel or one or the other of the ambassadors, the American ambassador to Israel or the Israeli ambassador to America in response. What kind of a response is on the table right now? Well, a couple of thoughts. I've spoken certainly not to the entire caucus, but I've spoken to many people, both in leadership and uh, and new uh, freshman members of Congress. And I've been uh, emphatic to say we can be angry at a step the Israel government took. We can be angry at the president of the United States for interfering in in Israel politics. But uh, we shouldn't conflate that with anger for the state of Israel, for the people of Israel. And I think that's been pretty much the uh, across the board feeling. Israel still is our most important ally in the region, one of our most important allies in the world. The U.S.-Israel relationship is crucial for both of our national securities. We share values. We share uh, worldviews. And I think that all will continue. Uh, That said, there's certainly some disappointment and anger that two members of the Democratic caucus were prevented from entering Israel. Uh, I think there obviously will be discussions around that event, but I am hopeful that it won't have ramifications long time into the future. You know, it's almost crazy to think about this now because it feels like this was an eternity ago. But if we rewind the tape to just about a week ago, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer had just finished chaperoning a huge group of mostly freshman Democratic members uh, around Israel. It seemed like all was well with the relationship between the Democrats and Israel. Omar and Tlaib had been proven to be truly marginal. Now, 
that's not so clear again. You know, where does the Democratic Party go from here? Uh, so I was on that trip. I had the privilege of being part of what was the largest delegation ever uh, to Israel. We were 40-plus Democrats. Uh, 30 Republicans came a week later. We overlapped for two days. It was an extraordinary trip. Uh, with the Democrats, uh, the best way to describe our week-long experience together was magical. And uh, there were members who described having never been to Israel, uh, having seen Israel only through the eyes of, of news reports or, or briefings, whatever, the chance to be there, see it, experience it. Uh, they came back with a, a love for Israel and a, and a respect for the challenges Israel faces. As I mentioned, subsequent to the decision not to allow our, um, our colleagues in, I've spoken to many of those members. Uh, I don't think we've lost the value of that trip, of seeing Israel firsthand. In fact, I think that the trip enhanced the relationship because we see that it's more than just one person. So that's the good news. The bad news is, is that the decision uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu took, uh, apparently at the influence, if not direction, from the President of the United States, uh, is going to have ripple effects. I worry always about a, a loss of bipartisanship in the House, uh, and we're going to have to double our efforts to make sure that that continues into the future at the same level. And by same level, I mean we can get 400-plus votes on a U.S.-Israel bill. We want to make sure that continues in the future. If we think ahead to the next class of freshman Dems, do you think that this is an issue that's going to come up again? Are people going to turn down this kind of a trip because, you know, there'll still be ramifications from the denial of entry to Omar and Talib? You know, that's two years out. We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, I think uh, people will still continue to go to Israel. We will continue to welcome delegations from Israel to the United States and, and build that person-to-person relationships. We have to because that's how you secure the connections between our two countries. Uh, but, uh, you know, my hope is that there are trips planned later in the year, that people will continue to go on those trips and that Israel will welcome those members. Uh, and uh, people will see that Israel is a multifaceted country just like the United States. Earlier this week, in response to the continuing fallout from this, or perhaps in an effort to continue the fallout from this, President Trump said, I think he was sitting next to the president of Romania at the time, he said, quote, I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Was that an anti-Semitic thing for the president to say? Look, one of the most dangerous and commonly repeated anti-Semitic tropes is that of dual loyalty. What the president said, first, I think he said it on Tuesday, and then again on Wednesday, he doubled down and then tripled down, uh, was questioning the loyalty of American Jews. Whether he was questioning it to loyalty to Israel or loyalty to him personally, uh, it was an anti-Semitic trope. It was wrong. It is dangerous. And I called for him not just to stop, but he needs to apologize to the Jewish community and all Americans. Uh, we are a democracy, a democracy of people with many opinions uh, and uh, multiple political alliances. But uh, w- within that, uh, all are Americans and all should have the right to, to vote their conscience and, and make their voice heard. So uh, I think what the president said was dangerous. I think it was anti-Semitic. And I think he needs to apologize. If anything, the the Jewish vote has been trending further and further into the Democratic camp with each successive election. I think um, just looking at the last two, I think uh, Hillary Clinton got about 71, 73 percent of the uh, of the Jewish vote. And then uh, this is a statistic that's been cited quite a bit in 2018 in the midterms, 79 percent, according to uh, CNN exit polls, 79 percent of American Jews pulled the lever for a Democratic candidate. Do you think we're going to see something roughly similar to that in 2020? 
Well, I think the, the balance has been pretty consistent, anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of Jewish voters have voted Democrat, uh, and that shifts a little bit depending on the election. Um, but, uh, you know, I have friends who are Democrats, I have friends who are Republicans. I think almost all Jews, uh, and it's the only Hebrew I'll, I'll use, mostly the only Hebrew I know, but uh, Hillel's <laughs> famous statement of... Um, if I'm not for myself, who will be? But he goes on to say, if I'm only for myself, what am I? Uh, that kind of defines Jews across the political spectrum, across the religious spectrum. We are people who believe that we can't do just for ourselves. We have to be a part of our community and, and do for others. And uh, at least of late, it has been the Democratic Party who has been putting that front and center. Uh, so I wasn't surprised to see more Jews voting Democratic in 2018. Uh, irrespective of what President Trump has been saying, I would expect to see a, a skew towards Democrats again, just because some of the priorities of the respective parties. But there are Jews on both parties. I don't question their loyalties. The president's clearly wrong to be questioning anyone's loyalty as well. It's nice to know that Cory Booker isn't the only person in Washington who can give a Dvar Torah from time to time. Um, Congressman Schneider, you are one of the co-sponsors of HRES 246, which was the anti-BDS resolution um, that passed resoundingly in the House back in July. I think the vote total was 398 to 17. There were more than 350 co-sponsors. I think you were one of the lead co-sponsors. We're seeing this cast into stark relief now with the various issues that have come up over the past few days. Um, Not least, of course, these two boycotts supporting members of Congress. Why was this resolution important? Uh, So thank you for asking the question. It's a great question. I was privileged to have the chance to be the lead co-sponsor on this bill, uh, to be the one talking to my colleagues uh, over the course of actually a, a few months trying to build support. And I'll I'll break it into two pieces. First, why it's important, and then why we got the support that we did. Uh, It was important uh, on a number of levels, not the least of which is it was an affirmation from Congress on three key lines of argument. First, that the United States supports a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, is committed to Israel's security, uh, that nothing has changed in, in that realm. Second, that the United States Congress believes that the path to long-term peace, maybe not tomorrow, but in the future, uh, peace is going to be achieved uh, in the region by negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians that ultimately will achieve two states for two peoples. And thirdly, in condemning the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, that the global BDS movement, because it denies the Jewish aspiration for their own state, because it poses two states, it stands in the way of peace, and we were clear to condemn it. So it was important to get that message out, and I wanted to make sure that we voted on that bill before uh, students started going back to college campuses, because BDS is getting a lot of on-campus student support for a number of reasons, uh, but many of those reasons are because BDS is misrepresenting itself. And I think having Congress in a strong voice uh, make this statement gives uh, students, pro-Israel students, just another uh, arrow in their quiver, if you will. The reason we got the great support that we did is that, uh, you know, I talked to 
virtually every member of, of not just the Democratic caucus, but uh, the Republicans as well, uh, explained that what we were trying to do, why it was important. Uh, I think everyone understands Israel is a great ally, understands Israel's security is of paramount importance, and uh, came to understand that the global BDS movement, as distinct from uh, past efforts that have used boycotts as tactics, for example, civil rights movement, uh, that the global BDS movement was an enemy of peace. And so, again, a pro-Israel um, bill coming to the floor of Congress, we had 398 votes for it. I was very pleased to see that. As a representative from the Chicago suburbs, I think Skokie is actually in your colleague Jan Schakowsky's district. But famously, Nazis marched on the streets of Skokie back in the middle of the 20th century. And many of us in the Jewish community hold that up today as, you know, that's how far our our free speech rights should go. Even something that is so clearly abhorrent um, should have license to be given voice in our discourse here in America. What would you say to those people like, as it happens? Representative Rashida Tlaib, who say that this resolution curtails freedom of speech. Well, I, I spoke to Tlaib about it and asked her her perspective because she was saying this, and, and I disagreed with her. And I told her why. First of all, this doesn't curtail anyone's right to free speech. Uh, it, it makes an argument. It says, as I said before, we support Israel. We support a path to peace through negotiations, and Congress believes that BDS in opposition to two states is an opponent to peace. Uh, that doesn't challenge anyone's speech. In fact, it's a reflection of Congress's right to have an opinion, but everyone else is entitled to their opinion as well. I actually moved to the Chicago area in 1979 to go to college, so I was here uh, for that uh, Nazi protest in Skokie. And I remember saying at the time that no matter how repugnant I may find someone's views or remarks, I will fight with everything I have to defend their right to speak them. That is the American ideal of freedom of speech. Uh, but that is distinct from saying that all messages are equally just um, or, or equally uh, true. And what I, I said to Tlaib and to many of my other colleagues, that, and this gets to the idea of boycotts. You know, we've used boycotts in the past, civil rights against Montgomery bus boycott. You saw it with uh, efforts to end the uh, apartheid regime in South Africa. Uh, that is a use of a boycott for a just purpose. But not all boycotts have just purposes or, or desirable uh, ends. And that is the case of the global boycott divestment sanctions movement. She disagreed with me. She said, it, you know, in her mind, it has a chilling effect. I disagree. And we were very clear on that. Just to close, you know, the other interview in our episode this week is with Dr. Kurt Graham, who's the director of the Harry Truman Presidential Library. And one of the things he and I talked about was the role that Eddie Jacobson, who was uh, Harry Truman's best friend and uh, a, a Jewish person from Kansas City, the role that he played in helping ensure that Truman would extend recognition to the new state of Israel when it was created in 1948. We talked a little bit, uh, Kurt and I did, about what it is to be a Jewish advocate and how Eddie Jacobson might represent kind of that paragon of advocacy. You, Congressman Schneider, are an example of someone who has been an advocate when you served on AJC's Chicago Regional Office Board and through involvement with AJC and, and other Jewish organizations. And now you've made that transition and you're actually a, a policymaker. What is it like to take that step, um, to go from being someone who's committed to helping to shape policy from the outside and then going and, and actually um, taking a step into the legislature yourself? 
Sure. Uh, thanks. You know, being a representative, representing the 700 and some odd thousand people that live in Illinois' 10th congressional district, I say all the time it is the greatest responsibility and highest honor I could possibly have. Uh, but I also say, when I talk to folks at, at AJC in particular, that the transition for me from going to advocating for issues that I cared about to being on the other side and, and listening uh, to people advocate for their issues uh, was, a, I think, in many respects, a smoother transition uh, than I might have expected because of the experience I had, in particular working with uh, AJC. And, and my roles of having been to Washington and meeting with uh, members of Congress here in Chicago, uh, but also the, just the, the policies that AJC covers. So to a great extent, my ability to be effective at my job as a representative um, is built upon my experience and the lessons I learned as an advocate for AJC. So it was not that difficult of a transition uh, because the two go hand in glove. And I, I greatly appreciate the work that AJC does, that AJC members uh, in Chicago and across the country uh, perform. The conversations they have with their members of Congress makes it so much easier for me when I talk to them uh, to touch on these issues, to explain where I'm coming from, why an issue I think is important uh, should resonate for them. So it definitely is something that goes hand in glove. Any last words of advice for all of the uh, Jewish advocates listening in? Any suggestions as someone who is advocated to every day on how to be the most effective advocate they can be? Sure, a couple of things. The, the first thought is when uh, we're advocating for an issue, it's important for us to be passionate about what we care about, but also to continue to try to understand the other perspectives that relate to the issue of which we're speaking. Uh, and the, the second thought, and this is from my experience on both sides of the conversation, is it's not enough just to have one conversation. It's, it really is about building relationships, about getting to know elected officials at the local, state, and federal level, of understanding that uh, different people have different experiences. So while uh, when AJC people come and talk to me, we're coming from the same place. We start at the same perspective. That's really simple. But for other members, you're going to start with someone who may have never even thought about an issue that we're bringing up. And the famous, uh, I think it's Stephen Covey who said, uh, it's often better to first understand before seeking to be understood. Uh, all of that wraps in together as one. Well, Congressman Schneider, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise. Safi, thank you. I enjoyed talking. I look forward to doing so again. Dr. Kurt Graham is the director of the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library in Independence, Missouri. Next year will be 75 years since Truman succeeded FDR as president, and in anticipation of that anniversary, the Truman Library has undertaken a major renovation. Kurt joined me in studio last week for a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation on the importance of history, the founding of the State of Israel, and Truman's legacy today. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So I want to start with kind of a meta question from that 30,000-foot view. Before we even dive into Truman, why is it important to study history? Well, I mean, if you think about where we've been, that gives us a good sense of it's like it provides context, right, for where we are. So I think the main reason to study history is to get context for your own time, but also to expand 
your experience. We all lead fairly limited lives. And I think you go back in the past and meet characters in the past for the same reason you take a plate of cookies and go meet your neighbors, because that expands your horizon, it expands your experience. It introduces you to people who don't think and act and talk and look like you do. And I think that's always very beneficial. There's an interesting kind of debate in the community of historians, I think, about, or or maybe a, a debate in the general public about whether history repeats itself. Your typical historian would say, no, but you can still learn something from history about, maybe not learn about the future, but as long as we know the lessons of history, it can inform the way we address the future. Where, where do you fall out on well, that? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that people who are fearful that somehow we're not learning the lessons of history and we're doomed to repeat some catastrophic decision, the fact of the matter is the context, the circumstances are always different. Mm-hmm. So you can't go back and say, well, see, we learned this from World War II or we learned, I mean, Honestly, one of the reasons that Vietnam went the way it did is because we were applying the lessons of World War II, hmm. and it was a very different kind of engagement. And so it's obviously very worthwhile to study history, to know ourselves better, and to have a broader experience, because that just makes us better decision makers in general. But the idea that we can go back and figure out what you know, what would Abraham Lincoln do in this situation? Well, you know, I mean, he, you know, people ask that all the time. What would the founders do, you know, around this, you know, global warming or something? Well, that was the furthest thing from their mind. They wouldn't have even known where to start with that question. So we need to be bold enough to make our own decisions and not try to pass it off on other people who, uh, you know, and grab a quote and take it out of context and say, well, see, here's what Emerson would have done or here's what Jefferson would have done. Well, yeah, maybe. I'm picturing someone explaining Twitter to Abraham Lincoln <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how that would yeah. work out. And trying to explain it in only 140 characters or whatever <laughs> it is as well. Um, Kurt, your AJC story starts in 2018 at the mm-hmm. AJC Global Forum in Jerusalem when you spoke on our main stage. And you said, quote, you believe there's no better place in the United States to tell the story of the founding of Israel than the Truman Library. For our listeners who don't know that part of history, can you tell us about Truman's role in the rebirth of modern Israel? Well, it is, uh, just to pick up on that on that statement, I appreciate you starting there because there is no other place. There is no other museum. There is no other think tank. There is no other sort of university department or unit that is pursuing this important question. And the thing that is important to me is that Harry Truman literally changed the map of the world. The fact that this farmer from Missouri became president it says a lot about a lot of things, but it does have an impact on the world far beyond just farmers in Missouri. So um, certainly his decision and desire to recognize Israel immediately upon its declaration and to have been concerned about that problem, to have been concerned about the Holocaust, about the DP camps, I mean, this had been plaguing him for years. This was not, oh, he got three memos and, uh, you know, sort of weighed this and in an afternoon decided what to do. This decision, which was momentous, was years in the making. And, and it speaks to the heart, not just of a crisis in the world and what needed to be done, it speaks to who Harry Truman was. Um, he always was concerned about people who were being abused or or taken advantage of in some ways. I mean, his civil rights legacy speaks to that. Um, he was ahead of his time in terms of, and I don't know, maybe that's not even the right phrase, ahead of his time. He was concerned about others. It was a very basic principle uh, that there's a humanity to that. There's, there's a, a reality to that, that Truman just always went back to a kind of moral core when he made those kinds of decisions. I'm glad you mentioned that and the Holocaust there. If I recall correctly, 
Truman spoke at a rally in either New York or Chicago. Chicago. In Chicago, mm-hmm. it was called like Rally for Our Doomed Jewish Brothers in Europe, yeah. something like that, right? To demand rescue of the doomed Jews, I believe was the phrase. And this was, where, where was Th- he? This, in- this was in 1943 when he was mm-hmm. still in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. So he was a little known uh, political figure at that time. I mean, he was getting known uh, and, and, and being known for the Truman Committee, which he went around the country in a Chrysler that we have on display at the museum. Uh, they <laughs> traveled... Uh, no no first-class jet travel in those days. And so he, he went from place to place, and he was investigating fraud and abuse in government contracts around military installations and that kind of thing. So so that was kind of what he was known for. I mean, he was getting known, you know, as sort of a, a guy that really knew how to find waste and fraud in the budget and whatnot. But the idea that he was this voice for the underdog, that he was this great humanitarian, this champion of the rights of other people, even though those of us who look back on his career say, well, of course, I mean, this was this was budding, this was this was growing all along. But the fact of the matter is, um, that speech in Chicago was a, was a turning point for the rest of the world to hear from him with with that kind of clarity. And th- this is a young senator with ambition establishing a foreign policy credential, or this is just someone who feels called to speak out against injustice in the world. Oh, I think it's or more both. Th- it could I, be both. Yeah, I think but I think it's more the latter. I mean, I really don't know that Truman at that time I, I think that you know, not only was he not necessarily trying to carve out his exact thing. You know, we're, we're used to the United States Senate today being a place where as soon as people get there, they start thinking about how they get on the ticket and what they do to position themselves for that next bump. Um, Truman was a senator. Senator, he was very hesitant to become vice president. Mm-hmm. He wanted to stay in the Senate. Um, you you spoke a little bit about what the founding of Israel would have meant to Truman, and, and certainly what it meant for the world. Can you just back up a little bit and tell us the story? You know, my understanding is that kind of all of his advisors here in the states, all of his kind of official advisors, were saying, you know, yeah. pump the brakes, yeah. right? So what happens in May 1948? Well, you know, it is an interesting moment, and it is not a moment that would be easy to predict. I mean, if you didn't know how the story turned out and somebody said, okay, here's all the data points leading up to this decision, how do you think it's going to go? I don't think you can clearly guess what is going to happen, because I think the decision was rooted not in policy, not in the particulars, it was rooted in character, and it was rooted in this deeper kind of humanity. Yeah, the story was that Truman with these DP camps, you know, he had the Harrison report, he had all these things telling him, look, things are not good in Europe. These people are displaced. In many cases, don't have homes to go back to. So this idea of a of a partition plan, of of the following through on the Balfour Declaration, which was, you know, a World War I product, which basically promised the Jews a homeland. And Truman just felt that that's something that should be honored. But you're right. I mean, he had to go against his own State Department Many of his, I mean, including General Marshall, who was a very close friend, mentor, advisor, I mean, someone he respected probably more than anybody else at the time. Um, he also had to uh, grapple with an ally, the British, who were, were not wanting to uh, take people from Europe or allow them to uh, land in, in what they call Palestine because they didn't, you know, the problems that that would create from their perspective. But Truman valued and followed that partition plan, that idea of sort of what we would call today a two-state solution. Um, it didn't go that way, obviously, but but um, nevertheless, uh, it was something that he felt was important. So when, when the country was going to be declared, this new nation was going to be sort of birthed, if you will, uh, he was right there within, literally within hours of that declaration, the United States recognized 
the new state of Israel. There's this famous story of Chaim Weizmann, who would go on to be the first president of Israel, mm-hmm. was in D.C. And the Jews in mandatory Palestine, the Jewish community, the Zionist community in America kind of thought that the best chance for U.S. recognition, I think, would be if Weizmann sat down with Truman. And there's a fellow named Eddie Jacobson who kind of facilitates this, right? Right. The, so Jacobson is a as a World War II buddy of Truman's. They ran the commissary together, and then after the war, they went into business together in Kansas City. And that's the, you've heard the failed haberdashery, the, you know, <laughs> the clothing store that went out uh, they, because the economy was bad. They couldn't make a go of it. But he and Jacobson, Jacobson, of course, was Jewish, and but they were very close friends, which when you go back into that time thinking about a Southern Baptist uh, and a Jew being close enough friends to actually go into business together, um, you, you know, it, it, it speaks a lot about about Truman. I think even even yep. then, but they went into business, and you know, when that business failed, I think, his, I think Truman's mom was a KKK supporter or something. Right? Oh so yeah, they, also, they were. He's he's overcoming some family history. Here, oh, right? overcoming. I mean, with his civil rights legacy, the same. He is a. That's where you can say he's sort of ahead of his time. I mm-hmm. mean, he had to come out of family and regional history in a way that few people are able to yeah. do to transcend what he had been taught from from the very beginning, but. Um, Nevertheless, uh, they had that great relationship, and Eddie Jacobson comes to see him, and and Truman's not at all happy about it, partly because, you know, as much as he wanted to help and do something, he makes several comments about being kind of fed up with the Zionists. I mean, he he felt they were pushing too hard, asking for too much. Yes, he wanted a solution. So when Jacobson comes to see him, it's... um, you know, they're friends and he's willing to kind of take the meeting. And, and and I don't know if anybody can say for certain whether Truman would have met Wiseman or even if he hadn't, whether he would have gone ahead and recognized. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't argue counterfactually and go back and undo uh, that meeting or undo what was done. But I think most of us who look at this think, you know, it didn't hurt that an old friend came by to say, look, I mean, would you, would you listen to this guy and just see what he has to say? Yeah. Um, I think that the most passionate and the most historically informed Jewish advocates today would think of Eddie Jacobson as kind of this, you know, paragon of, mm-hmm. of what it means to be an advocate. What lessons can AJC's constituents who, you know, want to be effective Jewish advocates, what can we learn about effective advocacy from, from Eddie Jacobson? Well, I, I think what you learn from anybody who advocates or agitates is that it's worth it. I mean, you, you need to do it. You need to get out. And, and you know, even Eddie Jacobson, you can't say, like I said just a moment ago, whether or not it made a difference. I mean, we, we go through our lives and we try to affect positive change. We try to spend our days doing good, but we don't really have the full measure of our own impact even. So, you know, Jacobson would be no different in that. And any of us who advocate for any cause, you know, hope we're making a positive difference. But I think the positive difference we're making is just in in doing it and just getting out there and saying, hey, look, I believe in this. I want to see something positive happen for people. And if nothing else, it's good for you. It's good, you know, it's good for your soul to be doing <laughs> something worthwhile. And I think, you know, and of course there, there, there is an impact because we're all human beings, right? I mean, everything is based on relationships at a certain level. You know, we care what our friends think. We care what people around us think. And so when people are advocating for something and you're in a position it gives you to, to make a difference, to, to make a decision. It gives you some support, gives you a, a reason to, to think that it's the right thing to do. Uh, next year will be 75 years since mm-hmm. FDR died and Truman assumed the presidency. Yeah. 
how has Truman's legacy evolved uh, in the ensuing, you know, not quite three quarters of a century because he actually lived out his term, but, um, but mm-hmm. you know, how has his legacy evolved since his presidency? Well, I'll tell you, I appreciate that question very much because it has been a tremendous evolution. As you are well aware, when Truman leaves office in 1953, when Ike is uh, inaugurated, he leaves office with the lowest poll numbers in modern history even lower than anything today. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The, the, I mean, it's like 32, 33%, something like that. And today, Truman is consistently ranked as one of the fifth or sixth most important presidents in our history, period, behind Washington, Lincoln, and the two Roosevelts. And, you know, you'll see Ike and Jefferson and others kind of rotate in there as well, but he's always in that, you know, middle of the top 10 somewhere, uh, which is an incredible turnaround from where he was when he left office. And I think there are a couple of things that we can say about that. One is Harry Truman had to make a lot of decisions, a lot of really tough decisions, I mean, including recognizing Israel, desegregating the troops, for example, both of which happened, by the way, in the summer of 48, spring and summer of 48, when he's got to face an election <laughs> in the fall. You know, can you imagine someone coming out with those kinds of positions, yeah. risking alienating the sort of base, if you will, um, it was it was a very gutsy move in, in, in both cases. So I think we look back on Truman and we appreciate now the fact that even though he took some heat in the short term for decisions he made, like the firing of MacArthur, for example, that's one, that's a classic example of where he kind of took it on the chin there for a while because he was seen as weak. Whereas um, now we look back and constitutional historians will say, well, the difference between us and a banana republic is that the civilian supremacy of the armed forces is intact. And that's because of Harry Truman. Harry Truman reiterated that. So I think, back to your question about what makes a big difference here, is I think Truman got bogged down in Korea, uh, the Korean War. And that's what really sort of created a, a, a little bit of a problem for him in terms of his legacy. Because people thought, you've got the bomb, use it, you know, go in, tough, you know, whatever. And I think it's when Johnson gets bogged down in Vietnam and stuck in that quagmire later, you know, a couple of decades later, that people look back and say, you know, maybe Harry Truman's restraint wasn't a sign of weakness. Maybe there actually was resolve and reserve that were beneficial. And maybe his ability to take a level-headed approach and to not draw China into a nuclear war, and all of that, I think, sort of adds up to a guy who's got steady hands on the reins and who's, you know, a firm hand on the tiller, however you want to say it. And I think things like that happen. And then I think just the amount of scholarship that's been done. I mean, I tip my hat to David McCullough, that great biography he wrote, you know, a quarter of a century ago now. But what a difference that has made in terms of Truman's legacy and his reputation and and his place among, you know, in the pantheon of great American presidents. Uh, And there have been many, many other great books written even in recent years. I'm constantly amazed at the number of people who come to the Truman Library to do research on this important president and that era. And as long as that continues, um, I think people are fascinated because it is so relevant to today. And I think his stock just goes up as we realize that we're dealing with a lot of the same problems. That's exactly where I want to go. You know, <laughs> today restraint is maybe not a word that we associate with our president, mm-hmm. but there certainly are some resonances between the Truman era and our era. Incredibly close elections, right? Mm-hmm. There's the famous Dewey right. defeats Truman. Exactly. Actually, not quite. Um, a bipolar 
world, yeah. right? As China now rises into the position, mm-hmm. presumably, of second superpower. Um, Truman prosecuted two wars, right? Mm-hmm. His were not at the same time, uh, but, you know, he closed World War II and prosecuted Korea. And kept Korea from becoming World War III. Certainly. And incredible racial tensions, as we discussed in, in, in this country. What lessons does Truman have for our era? Well, I say to anybody who looks at me and says, why does Harry Truman matter? Why, why should we care about this guy? And I say, pick up a newspaper, look at a headline, and I can promise you that it will trace back to Harry Truman. Whether it's the Middle East, whether it's race relations, whether it's the Korean Peninsula, whether it's you know, the aftermath of World War II, you know, our, our allies like Germany and Japan that were rebuilt along with other uh, ally nations, um, the, the things that Harry Truman had to deal with are ongoing problems in the world today. And I think what we can do, we can't recreate those, that context. We can't recreate those circumstances exactly. But we can certainly go back, I think, and tear a page from his book about how to approach the problems. I mean, and the fact is the integrity, the character, the concern for the welfare of other people, those are very American principles. I mean, you go back to the founding documents, you know, the Declaration and the, uh, the preamble to the Constitution, you know, to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That is as American as it gets. And that is uh, something I, I think that Truman, uh, he read so widely in history and very deeply. And um, I just wish that we could return to an appreciation for the kind of structure that we have and how that structure is supposed to work and worry less about these short-term wins. We've had a, a whole era now, the whole modern era, where it's, it's all about the short-term win. And it's not really about pushing back and saying, where does this leave our children, our grandchildren? Where does this leave a whole you know, race of people or a whole religion or a whole anything, a whole swath of the population, a whole section of our demography? Where does that end up? And we just, we don't seem to care. I mean, at our leaders at the highest levels, we don't get that level of, of not just even compassion, but that level of thoughtful engagement about consequences, even selfish consequences. We're, we're unable to even think selfishly. We just think about right now and, and nothing beyond that. So I think Harry Truman is a great lesson in the long view. Even posthumously, he's a great lesson in the long view of history. When he died, he was not the fifth most important president in our history. Hmm. I mean, that is something that has happened since then, this whole Trumania, this whole notion of all these books that have been written and whatnot. But he, he did his best. And, you know, when Walter Cronkite narrated the coverage of his funeral service, he said, you know, Truman, because he was a man uniquely of his time, we will never see his like again. And I fear that Cronkite was right that we will never see someone who just pulls himself up the sort of bootstraps kind of guy that Harry Truman was, couldn't afford to go to college, didn't have the kind of powerful connections and things that are just a requirement today to even get into, you know, any kind of office. And it's a very different kind of game, but Truman was in it for the right reasons. He, he made decisions. I mean, I'm not saying he never made, made poor decisions or made the wrong decision, but I'm saying he made his decisions from the right place. Well, Kurt, we started out saying that history doesn't tell us where we're going, but it's nevertheless important to know how we got to now. Um, Thank you so much for filling all of our listeners here on AJC Passport in on this important part of our history. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought. 
about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Chutzpah. Good for the Jews? Last week's episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, is called Chutzpah versus Chutzpah. In it, he examines the difference between the Americanized, glorified idea of chutzpah, which would be a synonym of spunk, from the Israeli version, chutzpah, which is a type of disrespect for the needs and feelings of others. How is it that the two meanings of chutzpah have diverged so wildly? I won't give away the findings of the episode, but if an Italian mafia story mixed with a Hebrew lesson from Gladwell's Israeli neighbor sounds interesting to you, then you should check it out. As to whether chutzpah is good for the Jews, well, let's stick with the American meaning and say that we are a people with gumption, with spunk, with boldness and creativity, that we stand by our values and stick up for ourselves, and heck yeah, that's good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.